chapter 7, starting at verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass, when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, that he uh, anointed it and consecrated it, and all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils, so he anointed them and consecrated them. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's house, who were the leaders of the tribes, and over those who were numbered, made an offering. I want to stop there, get into introduction, and then we'll move forward. What we have is the longest book of the Pentateuch, 89 verses. And so we should be able to get out of here around midnight tonight. Um, now, a lot of it is repetitive as it goes through the various tribes. We'll look at one tribe and just carry that through to the rest. But nonetheless, really what's doing is the tabernacle has been built. Now, again, just keep in mind, what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is basically a tent. It's where the Holy of Holies is or the in that place where the Ark of the Covenant is. The Ark of the Covenant is that box that contained uh, a jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded in the Ten Commandments, but then on top of it was the mercy seat. And to the Jewish mind, that was the throne of God. That was the place where God was at physically when he inhabited the tabernacle. And so tabernacle's been built. This tent, it was to be portable. And keep in mind what's going on here in Numbers, at least in the first 10 chapters, Israel is preparing to head out into the wilderness on what was to be a 39-year journey. And so as they are preparing to go out, we're seeing all of these different areas that are being prepared for this move. And actually, it's going to be a series of moves as they're going to be leapfrogging all throughout the wilderness. And God's going to be teaching him them lessons of dependency. And so what we see here today is an offering that is to be made, and we'll get into that in a little bit, based upon the tabernacle and the portability of the tabernacle. But this was to be an expression of the people's hearts, because this was not church that's over there. This is part of their community, because the tabernacle is necessary for God to dwell amongst the people. And if the people are going out into the wilderness and they want God to dwell amongst them, it's important that this tabernacle is there, but there's still a couple of other issues to be tied up before they go out. And so really what's happening is, is God is presenting a need to the people and that if the people want him to dwell with them, there's certain, if you will, investments that need to be made. Where is it that you make your investments? When it comes to investing, we all make them somehow. Some get good returns and make good money on stocks, mutual funds, properties, and those sorts of things. Most of us make investments in our homes. We invest in our children and our children's lives. We try to lay something aside for the future. Others today, they invest. Well, they make their investment for the day, for their right now. Investing in things that give a return of instant pleasure, but nothing for tomorrow. Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, If in the matter of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? And he's just basically speaking of the ministry of, uh, uh, that he's been called to and his faithfulness in that ministry. But he says, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says, if, if there's no advantage to this, if there's nothing after this life, then why bother? Well, so many people, if you, well, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't believe that there's a life after death, 
then this is all the heaven you're ever going to get. And so that's his point. Let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. So make your spiritual investment in today. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, though, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that was very poignant. It was very profound. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And so where is your treasure? Your, your treasure of time, your treasure of effort, and your treasure of finance. When you look at that, where are you making that investment? Where, where are you putting those things? Or where are you directing those things? Now, the other things are important. We do need to prepare for our future. The scriptures speak of that. We need to make investments into our home. Definitely, we need to make investments into our children, and I'm realizing even our children's children. Those things are all very important. But truly, as I look at the spectrum of the investments that I make, the things that I do with my, <clears throat> excuse me, my time, my effort, and my efforts and my finances, that's going to be an expression of my heart. You're going to be able to see, wow, Mike's really got a heart for himself and his pleasures. Oh, wow, you know what? There's something unique here. Mike and Terry, they seem to have a heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord. And so where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, when we were growing up in La Mirada in the 1960s, our heart, believe it or not, was with General Tire. I remember we were always just so excited about it as kids, not understanding the whole concept, but my dad had some sort of profit sharing with General Tire. He worked there for a short time. He had like one share or something like that. Whatever it was, he got 20 cents a year, and he gave it to us. And I think he was trying to teach us a lesson, but the only thing we saw was the 20 cents that we were supposed to put in our bank, which we did, but we could probably take it out the next day, spend it on ice cream or whatever you could spend it on. Thrifties, you could get, actually, you could get a triple scoop plus with, with 20 cents back then. But nonetheless, there, you know, it was General Tire. And we saw the General Tire store, we would kind of take, you know, that's our store. You know, kind of take ownership in that because, you know, our, our heart was there because our investment, at least my dad's investment, that, again, we didn't understand anything. Remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was the tech stock boom. I know people who made money. I know people who lost a lot of money. Well, most of it went bust. But if you invested in Apple, Microsoft, Intel, Dell, Google, eBay, you'd be doing pretty well today. Matter of fact, the best all-time tech stock is in Cisco because they make the structure, the infrastructure of the Internet. Now, if you look, as I said earlier, as your checks, at your check statement, at your investments, it should give you a good idea of where your heart is. Is your heart here in the world, in the things of the world? Is it for your personal pleasure or is it for the Lord and the things of the Lord? Because we look at the financial reality, the financial landscape, if you will. Now, man has done much to defile it and whatnot. But, you know, keeping in mind that money is not evil. It's the love of money that is evil. And so as far as the financial landscape, the Lord never spoke against that such as it is. You know, itself, it's benign. It's benign. It's not godly. It's not ungodly. And, God, and Jesus even used it a lot of times for examples because, again, that's where people's hearts are. You know, paycheck is important. I mean, one of the reasons my paycheck is important and, and yours is too is because, well, you spend 40 hours a week, some of us even more than 40 hours a week working for that paycheck. And it's that which is God's provision into your life. 
the job you have, you have that job because God gave you that job. No, I went to school to get that job. God enabled you to get that education. God gave you that brain and God gave you that ability. Never make that mistake. God gave you the job. God gives you the paycheck. And if you take that for granted, God will take that away from you until you realize it. So you have to look, where is my priority in my investment? Is it spiritual or is it financial? Well, there was a man in the Bible whose priority was the financial, and the Lord referred to him as the rich fool. He made just all of his priority building barns and bigger barns because he was reaping a rich harvest. And then finally he got to the point and said, I can now sit back because I got it made, paraphrasing that. And, well, in Luke chapter 12, verses 20 through 21, it says, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Well, the answer to that is, it doesn't really matter because you're gone. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with laying up treasure for yourself, providing for your retirement and all. And if you're able to retire early, that's fine. And, you know, whatever God's calling you to do. But you can't forget the spiritual aspect of it. You can't forget God in the midst of that. Because we can so easily make the, the financial the priority and put God as a minority in those things. My father, as I've mentioned so many times, he retired at 55. I'm 57. I would have been retired for two years if I was him. He retired at 55. And I can remember him telling me that he hated going to his job. He hated, he had his own business. He hated, you know, when he got there, he had to deal with all the problems and the issues and the clients. And he was so happy. And when he was finally able to retire, and he just built so much in that business, and he poured his life into that business, and he was only able to retire for 10 years, and then his life was required of him. Now, the Lord used that to bring him to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that spoke volumes to me as far as what is our priority throughout this life. My father would work 60-hour weeks. Matter of fact, it did affect me in that I worked 60-hour weeks at times when I had my own business as well, and I looked at all he poured in, but I looked at all he left on the table, if you will. The games that he missed, and my brother and I in Little League, and all of those kinds of things, building and building and looking forward to that day, finally able to retire, had that 10 years, but then all of a sudden, it was all taken from him. I don't know Donald Trump's story, so I can't give you a current rich guy, but I'll give you a, a rich guy for us old guys, Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was always the personification of the rich person back in the 60s or so. He was a billionaire back in the 40s through the 60s, which is a multi-billionaire today. But I, I found this little thing on Wikipedia, and it says, Howard Hughes, the billionaire aviator, motion picture producer, and business tycoon, spent most of his life trying to avoid germs. He was deathly afraid of contracting some sort of disease and dying. Toward the end of his life, he lay naked in bed in a darkened hotel room in what he considered a germ-free zone. He wore tissue boxes on his feet to protect them. Boxes of tissues. He would open the middle and put them on his feet. I don't know what the thinking there was. And he burned his clothing if someone near him became ill. And so again, this guy was, was just, well, he was just over the top. 
over the top because he knew that the day that he was going to die, all of his riches weren't going to be able to do a thing for him. And what does the Holy Spirit convict us of? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Howard Hughes was a convicted man because he knew of sin, that he was a sinner. He knew of righteousness, that there is a God. And he knew of judgment, that he was worthy to be judged. Now, God's people had their mandatory tithes, and we've been through that in our studies, both through Leviticus and the book of Numbers. But here we have voluntary offerings. You always hear those two terms together, tithes and offerings. A tithe would be something that is, well, we see in the Old Testament it's mandatory. When Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, he spoke of their tithing, and he said these things you ought to do. But then there's the offerings, just the voluntary offerings that a person could make as well. And so here at the church, your tithing would be your giving, whatever it is that you give weekly. Your offering, well, my wife and I, we tithe to this church. We're members of this church. Even though I'm a pastor, I'm a member of the church, so I tithe to the church. But we also make offerings. We support Gospel for Asia. We support a uh, uh, a young man in, uh, in, in India. We make various other offerings from time to time. Josh and Amber, we make offerings to them. Uh, Every once in a while, we'll have a project here at the church that we'll bring to the body. When we wanted to change the carpet out, we gave an opportunity for people to make offerings towards that, and we were able to pay for the whole thing. We didn't have to take any money out of the church fund. We were able to pay the whole thing through the offerings that were made from the body of Christ. Now, if God was to dwell amongst his people... They were to make an investment in what was necessary to make that happen. Because again, they're going out into the wilderness. They're going to be going in in their mindset to the promised land. And God said, I'll dwell amongst you and I will be your God. But now there's a need that has come up. Well, previously, we're going to spend a little time looking at the previous need. You don't need to turn anywhere. But first of all, as I said before, there was the tabernacle. Now, this is before Numbers. This is back in Exodus. There was the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 25, Moses doesn't know anything about even the necessity for a tabernacle, but God meets him. It says in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 2, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Now, this isn't Moses's responsibility. This is everybody's responsibility. It's not my responsibility. This is the church's, the body of Christ's responsibility. Now Moses, uh, I'm sorry, the Lord said to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. So there's some conditions here. And so God wants to dwell amongst his people. He's going to require a tabernacle. Tabernacle was to be a picture of heaven, the dwelling place of God. But if the people want him to dwell with them, then that tabernacle is going to be necessary. And there's going to be some donations that are necessary to be taken. But you've got to have the heart. This can't be something compulsory. This has got to be something. You have a heart. Have God dwell amongst us. Go, you know what? I'll give of my sustenance to this so that God would dwell amongst us above and beyond the tithes that were required. Now, in Genesis, we saw how God created man. He did not assemble him by parts, but he created the totality of man from absolutely nothing. Now, he's certainly able to do that again, 
But instead, he has decided to use man to achieve his purpose. And what is God looking for? He's not looking for the tent. Because really, in actuality, the tent can't contain the glory of God. But this is for the benefit of the people. But he wants it, again, to be an expression of their heart. That's why, you know, I'm not up here hammering for money all the time. We pass the sock on Sunday mornings, and then we just make the announcement in the evening services. But this is between you and the Lord. You know, I don't want anybody to give anything that that, that they're going to be feeling that they, well, that they were taken advantage of by the church or anything like that. We have enough, you know, everybody's dealt with those feelings when you've seen churches that were really charlatans that, that had come in and just fleeced the flock and, and all that. We don't want to be like that. It's got to be from a willing heart, a willing heart and a desire to see God glorified and to see the work of God grow. Part of the reason that we double on, uh, on, on Easter Sunday is because we do a mailing. We send a mailing out, and the mailing that we sent out costs about $1,000 to send out. It's a work of ministry. Again, God has set the financial landscape, if you will, and the church is in that, participates in that. If you want the lights on on Thursday night, you know, we, it takes money. If you want a building to meet in, it, it, it takes money. It's just the reality of the matter. And in God's economy, the work of ministry requires finances. Where do the finances come? There's people who have a heart for the Lord, to give to the Lord's work, understanding that first God gave to them. And as God gave to them, well, if you look at the tithing example, the 10% example, you do whatever God lays upon your heart. I'm not saying you have to give 10%. But if you use the 10% example, God's really gracious because he could give us it all, and he could say, you know what, I want 90%, and you keep the 10%. But God says, I want 10%, you keep the 90%. And where is the 90%, I'm sorry, the 10% to be used for? The work of ministry. And you, you see, as, as, as Israel was faithful, the work of ministry, it prospered. And so here, God wants to dwell amongst his people, and God wants this offering to be taken from people who want him to dwell amongst him. And so God uses man to achieve his purposes. Salvation, we preach the gospel. The church, gathered together for the teaching of God's word. The word as it goes out from the pulpit and growth goes out and all of these things. Now, if man would be quiet, God, in times past, spoke through a donkey. When the Pharisees told him to tell these people to be quiet in his triumphal entry, he says, hey, if I make these people be quiet, even the rocks will cry out. And so there are going to be those who worship God and glorify God. Now, one of the greatest delights that the Lord seems to have is in a heart that beats for him. Again, it's not to be something that man is forced to do, but God just loves his people and to see the expression of his heart. That's how I can glorify God. I mean, what do I have to offer a holy God who created everything that we see from absolutely nothing? Just my heart. And how can I express my heart? Well, again, Jesus says, where your, where your uh, treasure is, there your heart will be. And as God is the greatest treasure that ever existed, I offer him my heart. I offer him my all because all has come from him. So the construction of the tabernacle, I'm still in Exodus chapter 25 or 24, so the construction of the tabernacle, Moses is instructed to receive an offering. And it is to come from God's people, and it is to come willingly. The NASB says, those whose hearts move him, who, who, who sees this great work, and their heart stirs them. 
NIV says, those whose heart prompts him to give. Notice here, as in all things, the people, again, are just simply giving back to God. King David, there came a time when God was moving out of the tabernacle and he was moving into the temple. And King David had an opportunity to be part of that work. Now, King David thought that he was going to be the one to build the temple and God told them otherwise it was going to be his son Solomon so King David he started putting together the resources I'm going to read first Corinthians first I'm sorry first Chronicles first 29 verses 1 through 5 it says furthermore King David said to all the assembly my son Solomon whom alone God has chosen is young and inexperienced and the work is great because the temple is not for man but for the Lord God now for the house of my God now again this is the heart of David This is this temple that's coming. This is the house for my God, David is saying. Now for the house of my God, I have prepared with all of my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, and bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I set my affections on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold, of gold, of ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, the gold for things of gold and the silver for things of silver, and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of craftsmen, who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Verse 14, David says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. David had a good perspective. And you could say, well, David had a lot of gold and silver too. That's easy for him to do. God just says, give of what you're able. Give of what is is emplaced upon your heart. See, if you have little, then little is a lot. Remember the widow's mite? This widow lady, there were, there were these Pharisees, and apparently there was some kind of time of day, there was almost this parade where they'd make this big spectacle of their giving in the, in the temple area, and those who gave a lot were exalted a lot. And then it seems like there was a kind of a timeout, or maybe they were done, and this one little widow came in and put in a quarter of a penny. And so you've got these other guys dumping all this, their riches in, whatever it was. And this one little ping, 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 just this little mite, this little quadrant. And Jesus said, just receive that. And they probably were going, do what? You mean what had happened? No, not what happened before. Did you see what just happened? Well, no, the only thing I saw was a little old lady. Yeah, but did you see what she gave? That was everything she had. And, and, And what Jesus, in essence, is saying Did you see the heart of her? See, those guys, they gave just 10%. They gave 10%, and they were trying to build themselves up for that as if they're really doing something. But this lady really did do something, and so it's not about the amount of the money. It's about the size of the heart before God. And this lady, this lady gave her all that she had. She got the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Sustenance. Sustenance is not to be confused with service. We are to serve the Lord, but we are to give to the Lord as well. 
Without the giving, there would be absolutely no tabernacle, and there would not be the opportunity to serve God through the sacrifice and whatnot. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, not so you're going to hold a grudge against God, or of necessity, you cannot buy salvation or you cannot buy God's favor, but God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a giver of somebody who can give and just offer it to God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their might. And that's what blesses the heart of the Lord. Again, it's never about the size of the offering. It's always about the size of the heart of the person making the offering. You are a cheerful cheerful giver when you give readily to the Lord. <clears throat> now, how cheerful were these people? I'm still in Exodus. Back in Moses' day, as they're getting ready to gather the things for the tabernacle, well, later on in Exodus chapter 36, verse 6, it says, So Moses gave the commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. It's the witness of too much money. Wouldn't it be a blessing to come into church one day and says, you know what, we're not receiving the offering. We just got to wait. The safe is full. The bank account's overflowing. Matter of fact, we're going to have a reverse offering today. We're going to fill up the socks, pass them around. If you need anything, take it. Well, the, the issue was these people's hearts were stirred, and they gave abundantly so much that there was more than enough for the work of the Lord. The substance that they had came uh, from the plunder of the Egyptians and from other battles, the plunder from other battles, they know since those victories came from God that it came from God, so they were just giving back again to the God who had first given to them. So I guess we should get back to Numbers chapter 7 at some point tonight. So entering back into chapter 7, the issue is giving, not so much for building this time, because the tabernacle's already been completed. We saw that in the first couple of verses. But now it's for moving and serving. Moving and serving. God thought this subject important enough to make it one of the biggest chapters in, again, the Pentateuch of the first five books of the Bible. And the first thing we see is preparation for uh, relocation. Preparation for relocation, verses 1 through 9. I'll read it again. Now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed it and consecrated it and all of its furnishings. So all of those had been set apart for the use of God and the altar and all of its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. <clears throat> then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's houses, who were the leaders of the tribes and over those who were numbered, made an offering. And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and 12 oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders and for every one an ox. And they presented them before the tabernacle. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these from them that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Mirari, according to their service, and the authority of Ithmar, the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Koath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things, which they carried on their shoulders. 
So since Israel was to be moving and wandering in the wilderness, the tabernacle was something that was to be portable. Again, there was to be the breaking down. So just think of this. They built the tabernacle for the first time. We see it at the end of Exodus. And then Moses sets it apart for the glory of God. Then all of a sudden, boom, the glory of God fills the tabernacle. Now, there, we've been through all of the restrictions of who can go in there and who can't go in there. If somebody would wander into it, they would die. And there was, you know, the, the uh, sacrifices to be made. But now at some point, the glory of God would rise out above the tabernacle. And now the tabernacle was empty. So the priests would go in there and take things apart. And then the Levites would come. Now keep in mind, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. And so the Levites from the various clans would come and they would do their part of the completion of the dismantle of the tabernacle for the purpose of transporting the tabernacle. Then there, if it was daytime, there would be that that cloud, that great cloud that would go before them. If it was night, there would be that pillar of fire and they would wander through the wilderness until those pillars stopped. And that would be where God would tell them to set it up. They would set it up. They would consecrate it, offer it back to the Lord and boom, his glory would re-inhabit it. And so this would require, and we saw a little bit of it a couple of chapters ago, this would require a lot of materials to be taken down, relocated, and to be set up again. Now, since the tabernacle was necessary for God to dwell amongst his people, and his people wanted to dwell him to dwell with them, again, this was not a Moses issue, but this was a congregational issue. So the solution had to come from the people. And so he had the leaders of all 12 tribes come before him and told them what was necessary in order to provide this means of locomotion, if you will, for the tabernacle implements and elements. And so... So each tribe, we were to provide, well, two tribes together were to provide one cart. And so they would have six carts and the numbers play out here. And then everybody was to provide, I say everybody, all 12 tribes were to provide one oxen. And so you would have one cart that was pulled by two oxen. It worked, it was good, it was practical. And so what Moses did was he took the two carts first, two carts and four oxen, and gave them to the clan of Gershon. And again, in chapter 3, we saw what Gershon's cart, this was a clan of the tribe of Levi, we saw in chapter 3 what his duties were. His duties were the tabernacle and its coverings, the screens, and its curtains. So it comes time to relocate them. Rather than carry them, they load up the carts, and that's how they transport them. And then to the clan of Mirari, he gave four carts and eight oxen. Why? Their responsibility was to be the boards, the pillars, the bars, the sockets, and the related utensils. And so that would be what would be necessary to have four carts, two oxen per cart. That would be eight oxen. But in verse 9, but to the son of Koath, he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders. Just look at the example of the Ark of the Covenant. What were they to do? Well, this was a box, and... Just say it's about the size, a little bit smaller, but about the size of the piano there. On the side, there was rings on both sides. It'd be a little bit wider. There were sides, and they were to put a acacia pole covered with gold through that, and they were to lift it up on their shoulders. So there would be uh, Levites on one side, Levites on the other, all four corners. And then they would carry it. It was not to be put on the cart. Well, there was a problem because later on, somebody tried to put it on a cart. They didn't try, actually, they did. The first to do it were the Philistines. See, there was Eli and 
he had ungodly sons, and he was going to battle against the Philistines, and they weren't doing so well, so he sent the Ark of the Covenant out kind of as a good luck charm. Well, unfortunately, they were defeated, and the Philistines got the Ark of the Covenant. We're not going to get into that whole story. But then God cursed them, and so they realized it was because they had the Ark of the Covenant, so they send it back. So they sent it back with oxen pulling a cart. And uh, the only thing I can think of is they saw everything else being transported this way. So more than likely, it just came to their mind to transport it that way as well. Well, later on, David, he becomes king and he hears where the tabernacle is at. And he wants to go ahead, not the tabernacle, well, the tabernacle, but the Ark of the Covenant. He wants to bring it into Jerusalem. And so he tells them to go and to transport it to Jerusalem. And then we have it in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Belal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. That would speak of the mercy seat on top of the ark of the covenant. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Yuza and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanied by the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord of all kinds of instruments, on firwood, on harps, stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and cymbals. And so there's an excitement there. They're worshiping God, and here comes the tabernacle, but there's a problem. Verse 6, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Yuza put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. So there's a little bit of an, an accident and the ark starts to fall and he tried to stop it. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Susa and God struck him there for his heir and he died there by the ark of God. And so you've got this man, young man, I don't know how old he was, but the ark starts to fall and he, what, what's the problem? Well, the problem goes all the way back to leadership, first of all. What were they doing? They were transporting the ark in a way that God told them not to transport the ark. They were transporting the ark the way the world transports the ark, if you will. They took their example not from God's word, but according to the world. And the problem is the world is always going to bring death. God will bring life. It should have been Levites, and they should have been carrying it by the poles. If they're doing that, then nobody stumbles and everything is fine. But what did God tell them? God told them, if anybody other than the high priest or the priest touches that, you're going to die. And this is exactly what had happened here. And you can say, but why? Because man must worship God according to God's terms and not the world's terms. See, you can do what is right religiously, but that's not always what is correct biblically. You've got to do things according to the word of God, not just according to, well, how the world worships, how the Philistines sent it back to you. In James chapter 2, verse 15 through 16, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Because God is a personal God. You did those things and said, be warmed and filled. You prayed for them, but did you minister to them? Did you truly minister to them? And again, they just did what the world did. They didn't truly minister to God the way God commanded that he would be ministered to. Uzzah, he did do an honorable thing. There's no doubt about it, but it's still no excuse. 
when you join the worldly to that which is spiritual, good people are going to get hurt. They were commanded that that thing would be carried by the Levites. Problem with David and his guys, that they were worshiping God according to the world's pattern. Secondly, there's the presentation for the dedication, verse 10. You're thinking, we really are going to be here to midnight. No, we're not. Verses 10 and 11. Where am I at here? Let me get back to Numbers chapter 7. Verses 10 and 11. Now the leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the altar. For the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offering one liter each day for the dedication of the altar. So over the next 12 days, each tribal leader presents his offering. Started out with Judah. If you would read through the next verses all the way through to verse 88, you would see it started out with Judah and it ended with Naphtali. And they brought, they ended up bringing 12 silver bowls and plates, 12 golden spoons, 36 bulls, 72 rams, 72 lambs, 12 uh, kinds of, of uh, um, goats, and 60 uh, rams. And so they're making this offering to the Lord. It's time to give to the Lord, and they're excited to do it. Now from verses 12 through 88 again, this is where I'm going to cheat tonight. We have the leader of each tribe, and again, it's spelled out the offering that he's bringing. It's important to see how God makes note, though, and that's what we've got to see here, and it's really the lesson here tonight. It's important to see how God makes note of all who give to him willfully with their heart. Just as surely as he sees that widow giving her mite, he sees us as well. He knows what we give, and he knows why we give. And most important, he knows the intention behind our giving. Am I just giving God a tip? Or am I giving of what God has given to me in obedience to however much, again, that's between you and God, however much he has called you to give or whatever percentage he has called you to give. Our God, he knows us very intimately. Do you know you have a God who knows you by name? He keeps your tears in a bottle. He numbers your days and he provides for all of your needs. It's a great God. It's an awesome God. It, it's a God who cares very much for you. Every believer will stand before him, and I'm talking believer, every believer will stand before him, and one day we will receive his reward. I'm not going to receive judgment because I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb. So God knows me. He knows all of my faults. He knows all of my victories. He knows all of my, my, my dedications and all of my, my defeats and all of these things. And one day, on top of everything else, as if salvation's not enough, he's even going to reward me. How much more so should I give of my heart to such a God? To such a God who loves me and gave his life for me. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absence, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There's not one of us who gets lost in the crowd. See, I can so easily say I have five grandchildren, but what I really have, I really have a Noah, Seth, Mariah, and Henry, and now I'll have a Malachi, or a Malachi, Henry. Um, my daughter Jamie had an ultrasound. We're having a little girl. I'm just going to name her, name her Malachi, the Italian version of Malachi. They're all different, and our relationship between all needs to be personal. So as our hearts are expressed through what we treasure, may we not treasure the world or the things of the world, May we treasure the kingdom of God 
pray that God would use what you are already. Campbell Morgan, G. Campbell Morgan said that when the church was the least like the world, the church did the most for the world. May we not be like the world, but may we do much for the world as we would see revival once again. Come upon the land, changing our portion of the world today that starts with those who have a willing heart to do so. Father, again, we see the, we just see how you're so personal, Lord. And everybody here is in different situations and circumstances. And Lord, you do meet us where we are at. We just thank you for that, Lord. We thank you, Father, that as the work of ministry is to move forward and to move on, just as it was back in Numbers chapter 7. And Lord, you gave the people an opportunity to be part of that. You do the same thing. That what's going on at Calvary Chapel, Ontario, isn't about Mike or Mike and Carrie. It's about all of us, Lord. It's about all a group of people that you have personally placed in this place for the work of ministry that we would have an effect upon South Ontario. And so, Father, I pray that we would have a mindset to expand our borders outside of this place. And as we do, Father, we would see your glory go before us. So once again, Father, we just thank you. We thank you for the people that we were able to pray for tonight. I lift up the people who rededicated or gave their lives to you last Sunday, but I look forward to what you want to do, Lord, in our individual lives tomorrow. And so, Lord, we just praise you and we just thank you that, Lord, you have chosen to bring us into your work. And for that, we glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.